So Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, I want to read down to uh, verse 14 this morning. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Amen. Now, my uh, hope today is to try and make this pretty simple for all of us here, young and mature alike. I have three points, as I said this morning. The first come by way of your text, and then the third point is an application of this text. This text can be divided into two parts. First of all, verses 1 through 10, you'll note here that we have Jesus Christ typified by the old ceremonial uh, law and worship. So verses 1 through 10 is a description of the tabernacle and later the temple that points us to Jesus Christ. When you get to verse 11, you'll note that there's a shift in the writing. And the shift is that the author moves 
from showing us how Jesus is typified in the Old Covenant to how Jesus is the reality of everything that the Old Testament was pointing us to. And that's found in verses uh, 11 through verse 14. And then I want, thirdly, to make application of this subject here in four parts. So, first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about the tabernacle and the temple. Then secondly, how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills that. And then thirdly, what does this mean for us today in the 21st century? What is a book written to Hebraic Christians about some things that maybe are going to be difficult uh, for us to relate to in one sense? That is, as a pastor, I'm not too worried that many of you are going to you know, head back to Judaism. Uh, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean that there isn't a relevancy to the things that are being discussed uh, that do face you, me, your children, your grandchildren, etc. here. So let's talk, first of all, point number one is coming from verses 1 through 10. And that is, here the author is showing us that the old tabernacle which was later replaced by the temple, is, was, a, was a teaching model leading us to Jesus Christ. The whole setup of the tabernacle and of the temple was not without purpose. It, this was not something made up by the Jews. This was something that had been revealed by God to Moses. So that God even told Moses, I want you to be careful what I'm about to tell you about the tabernacle because Every detail about it is something that is to lead you and point you to what I'm going to do in the future for your salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the very structure of the way the tabernacle was set up was to teach the, the children of Israel something about what the Messiah would later do for them. And so it was important. Now, as I've said before, remember that every... Thing that God taught his people in the Old Testament was much like what a father does for his child who's four years old when that child is learning to ride the bicycle. They're learning to pedal. They're learning to steer. They're learning to brake. They're learning to balance. Eight years later, that child is still riding his bicycle, but he's doing so without training wheels. A time of reformation has come about in that child's life. He's gotten older. He's gotten more mature. He knows what to do, and he doesn't need the training wheels anymore. And so the establishment of the tabernacle and of the later the temple, they were like the training wheels on that bicycle. They were there for a very good reason. But once a time of maturity comes, once Jesus comes in the in the um, in the fullness of time, as the New Testament says, then the old can be dispensed with. And that is why the worship of the New Covenant today here at Covenant Church and at First Baptist and churches throughout the world look very different from what was taking place in the days of Moses, in the days of David, in the days of Isaiah, in the days of all the way to Malachi. It looks very different here because of what Jesus has done to fulfill the Old Testament worship. But we can still learn some important truths about Jesus Christ and about worship by studying what God commanded Moses in regard to the tabernacle. So look at verse 1 now. For even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. 
and the earthly sanctuary here. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So the author here is reminding us of the setup of the tabernacle in the days of Moses. Now, what is the tabernacle, young people? The tabernacle is just really like a big tent. To put it most simply, it's a tent that had a huge courtyard to it that was fenced off, if you will, uh, by curtains that went all the way around. And, and those curtains were supported by bars. Uh, and these bars had class, and they would put the curtains on the class. And, you know, much like, you know, a shower curtain would go across. You had this uh, kind of very beautiful um, uh, textile that went all the way around that made a perimeter. And then you would go into that perimeter of curtains into what was called the outer tabernacle. And this is where uh, we would find things such as the offering, the, the place of offering. The, the altar was there, and there would be the, the burning offering that was going up as a fragrant aroma unto God. Now, notice here that the author says, taking us uh, going from the outer courtyard into the first sanctuary, and remember there's an outer sanctuary and an inner sanctuary. So you have the courtyard, the outer courtyard, then you have the tabernacle itself, and the tabernacle is basically has two rooms in it. It has the outer room and the inner room. And, and the outer room is called the holy place, and the inner room is called the holy of holies. And the outer room was visited by the priests on a daily basis. The inner room, the holy of holies, was visited only by the high priest, and only that one time. And only with blood. He never, ever went into the Holy of Holies without sacrificial blood being carried into that place. First for himself, then for his family, then for the people of God. So there was this concentric circle of sacrifices that would take place by which the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Now what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he is describing something that would have been familiar to many of the Jews. They knew about this place, especially those who had gone to the temple. Because the temple, you'll remember in Jerusalem, was really just a huge, in many ways, replica of the, the tabernacle. Uh, the, the, the temple was a, a, a giant, permanent uh, tabernacle that didn't move through the wilderness as God's people moved, but now was set in Zion, set on that mountain where Abraham sacrificed or was about to sacrifice Isaac until God said stop. Uh, it was on that mount that the tabernacle was, was placed here. Now notice what the author is saying though. He says in this holy place, uh, there, and he, he mentions some of the holy furniture, the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. Now, what was the lampstand? Well, the lampstand, of course, just like it sounds, was the place uh, that the priest would keep the light on. All right, the, 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 the oil would be placed in the lampstand, and the uh, lampstand would give off this light, and they, their job was to keep the lampstand burning. Then you had the table, and on the table was, uh, this is outside the curtain, uh, uh, that led to the Holy of Holies. It was to remind God's people of God's provision. 
God gives light. Uh, God gives bread. And then uh, God also here um, gives the altar. Look at verse 3. Then the second veil, there was at the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. This, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant that they carried through the wilderness. This is where God's law was in it. Um, Aaron's rod that had budded was in it. The, the, um, also, you have the jars of the manna that they collected was in all this, was in the covenant Ark. And above that, they would set the Ark of the Covenant there, and above the Ark would be what was known as the mercy seat, the footstool of God. And there would be these two golden cherubim that would be covering themselves with their wings, as in the presence of God. And the high priest would come into that place, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, but he would do that only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Now this went on all the way even through the days of Jesus. Even after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, this system and this regulation of worship continued for another generation until, as Jesus had prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21 that God in his judgment would bring an end to this tabernacle, to this temple. And for the last 2,000 years since AD 70, it has never been reconstructed since. Now here's the situation pastorally. The situation is that a lot of Hebraic Christians grew up under that system and they knew it well. And now maybe some who were in the diaspora, that is Jews who had left Jerusalem, Jews who had gone into the Roman Empire, maybe to Greece, maybe to Rome itself, they had less exposure possibly to it. It's harder, you can imagine, to get back to Jerusalem on an annual basis if you're living uh, in a foreign country. And so maybe for that reason, I don't know, he goes into great description of it. But they would have had some familiarity with this, even if it only be through the teaching of the local synagogue as they were growing up. But now, by God's grace, they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for some reason, there seems to be on their part a desire maybe to return back to this old system of worship and regulation. And so the author of Hebrews is really trying to show us that everything that is described here in detail, while having a glory, was a fading glory. Remember, the law came with power and glory so that Moses' face shone and he had to cover his face. But what do we know about that glory? It was always to be a fading glory. It was a temporal glory. It was a glory that was really to point to a greater glory, much like the moon points to what? The sun. The moon has a glory of its own, doesn't it? But it's a derivative glory. The glory of the old covenant had a glory to it, but he said, the author here is saying, don't go back to that glory. 
That glory was always to lead you to the greater glory of Jesus Christ. So look with me here. Notice that he says here uh, in verse 6, when these things had so been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle and they are doing this on a regular basis. They're imperfect priests with imperfect sacrifices, animal sacrifices, offering imperfect blood. But for the time being, that was sufficient. God accepted it. God had commanded it, and it was sufficient. But why did God accept animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? He did so as it was but what? Verse 9, a symbol for the present time. Because it was but a symbol of what Jesus, his son, would later do. You remember in, in theology, we think of the eternal covenant, the covenant of redemption in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead, even before creation, they agree to a plan of salvation. The Father has the plan of salvation and the Son is a willing instrument to accomplish that salvation and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation. And so this plan of salvation was always in view even in the time of Moses. And so the reason that God accepted these sacrifices in the days of Solomon and David and the prophets was because they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so pastorally, the author is saying, look, don't go from the glory of Christ back into what was a lesser glory. But recognize that the things of the Old Testament in the days of Moses and following were but a symbol or to put it in the language that is used elsewhere by the Apostle Paul, it was but a shadow. But you have the substance. What I want you young people to understand is this, is that you have something better than what Moses had. You have something better than what Solomon has. You, you have something better than what David and the prophets had. You have Jesus Christ, even though I know you've never seen Jesus, have you? Jesus is in glory. He's in heaven. But you have him by the word of God, through faith. You have Christ. And I don't want you to think you've got something less because it's less complicated. I don't want you to think that it, 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 you have something less because it seems less ceremonial. The, the, the glory of the old covenant had a, had a ceremonial glory to it. You could see it. Aaron looks beautiful in his high priestly garment, bedecked in beautiful and, and uh, almost like a pageant of colors and gold and the precious gems implanted in the vest is beautiful aesthetically, but it's a lesser glory. You have Jesus Christ in all his beauty as the Son of God come in the flesh. You have the glory of the hypostatic union, if I can use that systematic theology language with you. What in the world is hypostatic union? It's the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ coming together in the one person of Christ without any mixture or confusion. So that in Jesus Christ, we have somebody who is very God, a very God, truly God, and yet also very man, very man, 
every bit of a real human being like you, like me, uh, yet without any sin. You have in Jesus Christ a great high priest that Aaron could never match. Aaron's glory was an outward glory. Aaron had oil poured on his head, running down his beard, even to the edges of his garment, Psalm 133. But in Jesus Christ, we have one who is baptized and the Holy Spirit himself comes down on Jesus Christ like a dove. In the Old Covenant, we have the offering of a bleating lamb. But in Jesus Christ, we have John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. We have the very Lamb of God himself, the one who is chosen not by men, but by God to be the sacrifice. We have a blood in the Old Covenant that could cleanse uh, the worshiper, but only could cleanse typologically could only cleanse because we have Jesus Christ and his blood cleansing us from our sins, our defilements. Don't you realize, congregation, that even in the Old Testament, as you worshiped according to the word of God, you were thinking within yourself, there's more coming. There's more coming. This sheep cannot be the end all and be all of God's redemptive plan for me. Yes, I'm commanded to do this. Yes, God accepts what I'm about to do. But I know I do it in faith because there's a day coming. And Jesus said Abraham longed for that coming day when he wouldn't have to offer Isaac or a ram caught in the thicket. But God would offer, God would provide the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the glory to which even the old covenant worshiper, to whatever degree, even if it be small, according to their faith, that's what they laid hold of. They knew there was more. They knew that this was but a small pattern set before them to look to the future Messiah who was to come. The one who would be greater than Moses, Deuteronomy 18. The one who would be greater than David and yet David's son. The one who would be the greater prophet than Moses himself. God had promised even from the beginning that the seed of the woman would bring forth a king and a Lord who would crush the work of Satan. And they were waiting in the old covenant. There was always this anticipatory longing, even as they constructed the tabernacle, according to God's commandment, even as they built the temple, according to 2 Samuel. They did so, though, knowing that there was a greater glory someday coming. One day, Christ would sit on the throne of David. One day, the Messiah would sit on the throne and he would be greater than David. He would be a king and he would be a priest, and he would be the prophet, even the very word of God. So the author here, you know, he, he's taking you through the details of the tabernacle and saying these things are significant, these things are important, these things are of consequence, especially to the people of God in that day. They were of great importance. 
just ask, you know, a couple of Levites who, you know, brought an improper sacrifice and suffered the judgment of God. They were dealing with holy things in, in that day. They were not to be trifled over, but they were always, always going to be less than what was coming in Jesus Christ. And, and he's trying to show the Hebraic Christians. And you, and you ask yourself, why would they be tempted? And I don't know the details of why, but, but it probably had something to do with the fact that we enter into the humiliation of Jesus, don't we? Even the, the glory of Christ is truly ours, but so is the humiliation. And maybe it was the humiliation of Christ that is ours, the cross that we carry, that is maybe leading them to think we not, ought to go back. And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, you don't want to do that. That's a bad trade. Don't turn Christ in for that which was but a symbol for the present time. Look at verse 11 here. We move into the second part here. And this is where the author is showing us the fulfillment of the Lord and his work on our behalf for our redemption. He says, but in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is to say, not of this creation. Now, I want our young children to understand this. Boys and girls, do you know what verse 11 is saying here? Verse 11 is simply saying this, that Jesus, your high priest, has also entered into a tabernacle. He has entered into a holy veil. But the veil that Jesus has entered into is far superior to anything that was made by human hands, whether it be the tabernacle of Moses' day or whether it be the temple of Solomon's day. Jesus is our high priest and he has entered into the holy of holies. He has entered into the place that Isaiah saw in a vision. He has entered into the place where God makes his special presence known and revealed. Because you say, uh, you know, I thought God was omniscient. I, thought God is, I mean, I thought God was omnipresent. I thought he was everywhere. Yes. But there is, in that economy, still a place that God makes his presence specially known. It was specially known in Jerusalem, in the inner veil, in the tabernacle and temple but only typologically so, but there's even a more special place. And that place is in glory in heaven, far above our universe. And what the author is saying here is Jesus Christ, our high priest, after he dies on the cross and is raised from the dead and makes appearances unto men, he goes to that holy of holies, in glory. He goes into the very throne room where the Father is located. And he comes into the presence of his Father and he says, Father, I have finished all that you have given me to do. And I stand here now both, both as priest and as sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world and I have finished that which you have given me to do and I have been lifted up that I might draw all men to myself and now I come 
to sit on the throne of David. And the father says, son, well done. Come and take the throne of your father, David. For you are the greater David. Notice verse 12, it says he didn't come through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, once and for ever. Christ has gone into the holy place. We do not need to repeat this every September as the Jews do. Christ has done this once and forever. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He says, Christ, the high priest, has offered himself. And guess what? This offering of Jesus Christ will get you, even you, into heaven. This offering of Jesus Christ will gain you the complete pardon of sins. That's hard sometimes for us to lay hold of by faith because if we have been awakened by the Spirit of God, we know what a terrible person we are. We know that we are terrible, evil in my heart. And there is a part of me that says God could never accept me into his holy presence. But the scripture says, no, God has offered his holy son in your place so that you truly could be in that holy of holies with God. Christ has gone. And what do we learn? Christ is the head and we are the body. And where the head is, we too, the body will be. It is eschatologically delayed. Christ is in heaven. We are on earth. But Christ being the first fruit of the greater resurrection, that which Christ has entered into by way of his glory, we are surely coming just as the train of the bride comes along with the bride as she goes down the aisle. Christ has gone ahead of us. And we must therefore inevitably follow after him. We go with him where he is, because we are members of his body. Now, let me make four applications for us today. As I said, you know, the original audience here are Hebraic Christians, people who ethnically were probably Jews, and therefore there is something of a, uh, maybe a bit of discontinuity between them and us. But, I think we can derive four thoughts here. Number one, do not leave the glory of Jesus Christ for anything that is inferior, which is everything. <laughs> do not leave the glory of Christ for something inferior, even if it seems to have more outward splendor. The world tries to make you think this is heaven. The world tries to convince you that this is all there is. The world tries its best. Madison Avenue is trying its best to convince you, persuade you that happiness 
and glory and heaven and joy are found here in this life, in this material world, that it is the material world that will lead you to glory. It is outwardly attractive. It looks pleasing to the eye. It can't even be pleasant to the taste. But we must be on guard, even as the author warned the Hebraic Christians not to go back to Judaism with all its outward splendor of the temple. Remember, even the disciples said in Jesus' presence, Lord, look at this place. Is this place not magnificent? And Jesus had to remind them not one stone will be left upon another. And the world is doing the same. Christian, look at this place. Why do you follow Christ when you could have all this? Is this not the temptation of the evil one to Jesus? Jesus, this place is mine. You just bow down to me and I'll give it to you and you won't have to go to the cross. I can save you the cross. I can save you the trouble and the agony and the sorrow and the grief and the shame of it all if you just bow down right now to me. And you know that's what they're trying to do to you, young people. The world is saying, bow down to me. Bow down to the world. Just lay down your cross and follow the world and I'll give you the world. But it's a fool's trade. It's a sucker's bet. You're going to lose it all. Because Jesus has said, what is it going to profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You might win for 70 years and with extra strength, 80. But in the end, you have nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. So don't leave the glory of Jesus Christ for something inferior. Number two. Because Jesus is this glorious, we as Christians need to learn from the book of Hebrews and think more on the glory of Jesus Christ. We as Christians may not be tempted to go back to the world, but we may not be appreciating Jesus Christ as fully as we could because we are not spending time on meditating and thinking about the glory of Jesus Christ. We have it somehow intellectually, cognitively in our brain that theologically, yes, Jesus is glorious, but effectively it's not reaching us. And it's because we are not dwelling on this truth. We are not letting this truth get in our bones, into the marrow of who I am. We may not be buying the lie of the previous applicatory point, but we may not be eating as fully on Christ by faith as we should. Let me give you just a few things to think about this week. Number one, what does the author of Hebrews say in chapter 9? He says essentially what? Jesus is the tabernacle. Have you thought about that? I haven't thought about it probably nearly as much as I should. That Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. Be careful what you build here because it's a type of Jesus. Jesus is my tabernacle. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, it means it's a, there's a place for me to go and, and worship God. 
When Jesus is my tabernacle, I have a place to go and worship God. I worship God through Jesus. When I'm wandering through the wilderness of this world, there's a place I can go and get refuge. And that place is Jesus. When Jesus is my temple, I know I can approach God. I know that the sacrifice is acceptable to God, and I know I can come and worship God in spirit and truth. What else do we learn from chapter 9? We know that the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to bread. He mentions the table in the, uh, in the outer room of the sanctuary. There, there's the table of the showbread. Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm the bread. You don't need a table of showbread anymore. I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you shall live. Jesus said he's the sacrifice. Jesus said he's the priest. Have you thought about what does it mean for Jesus to be the priest? It means Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is making intercession. Jesus says he's the door. What does that mean if Jesus calls himself the, the door? If he's the door of the, of the sheepfold or the door of the temple, it means I, I go through the door. I go through Christ to the place where I have security. Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. There are all kinds of images taken from the old covenant and they are applied to the name and work of Jesus Christ. So think more on Jesus Christ this week. Number three. Here's a third one that we, I think, as Calvinists need to hear again. And that is number three, do not be ashamed to share Jesus Christ with others. If you know something of the glory of Jesus Christ, and you know something of which Hebrews 9 is speaking to us about, please, let's this week, not in some artificial constructed way that feels forced, but let Christ be so much of your life that you with one winsome sentence can speak of Christ in a natural, unaffected way to somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ this week. He is our glory. Let the community of LaGrange, Troop County, the surrounding counties that some of you come from know something of this glory. They're probably not going to read their Bible this week. They're probably not, many of them probably are not going to church this week. They need you and me. If you don't know anybody who needs Jesus Christ, please do this. Make some friends <laughs> who don't go to church. Get to know some people and, you know, share with them something of this glory. Fourth application, we're finished here. Number four, don't, don't leave the glory of Christ for the world. Number two, don't uh, think, or excuse me, think more on Jesus. Three, don't be ashamed to share Jesus. Number four, consider that we are united to someone so glorious that means that everyone here in this church is also united to that same glorious being. And that has tremendous implications for how we deal with each other and how we think of each other and how we love each other and how we pray for each other. It's not just you in isolation united to Jesus, but we as a body are all connected to this 
glorious Jesus Christ. That should influence the way we view other Christians, and not just the Reformed Christians, (laughs) but everyone who calls upon the name of